0: Welcome to Markets Plus, where leading experts from across BMO discuss factors shaping the markets, economy, industry sectors, and much more. Visit bmocm.com slash markets plus for more episodes. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
1: Hi, I'm Bill Thompson, Managing Director and Head of BMO's U.S. Logistics, Rail, and Shipping Group. We recently hosted a client panel to discuss the current state of the supply chain, along with the challenges and opportunities of how these points continue to evolve. Our event was moderated by Fadi Shamoon, BMO Capital Markets Transportation Equity Analyst, and featured distinguished panelists, including Phil Yeager, President and Chief Operating Officer at Hub Group, Derek Leathers, Chairman, President and CEO of Werner Enterprises, and Jonathan Ahut, President of Hardware Technology Solutions at Hypertech Group. The panel discussed how the supply chain has evolved since 2020. What are they addressing now? What are some of the biggest challenges facing transportation companies and shippers at this time? Key growth opportunities and suggestions for how transportation companies and shippers can work together to successfully navigate the current environment. I hope you enjoy this lively discussion as we believe it will add value to your business.
2: Good day, everyone. Uh, My name is Fadi Shamoon. I'm transportation analyst uh, for BMO Capital Markets. Uh, I'm honored to be hosting today's panel discussion on an important topic for most businesses these days, and that is the challenges being faced in navigating today's supply chain and how to prepare for the future. Um, There are a lot um, of factors affecting the fluidity and the stability of the supply chain and the current environment. Many of these factors will likely prove transitory, but they are still a challenge for businesses to navigate uh, through them, nonetheless, in the, in the, in the immediate term. Uh, we have seen uh, the West Coast imports rise 11% in 2021 versus pre-pandemic levels. Uh, with the largest gateway, uh, Los Angeles Long Beach ports up 18%. And and, and L.A., Long Beach represents 65% of West Coast import, just to put that in context. Now, consider that this is occurring at a time when we are dealing with pandemic-related operating protocols, uh, workers' absenteeism because of health issues, and driving schools that have been closed uh, for a while during the pandemic. And so we have fewer drivers uh, as a result of that. And and, and ultimately, while the active population is is shrinking for a long list of other reasons, the driver population. So not only it is hard to grow the supply chain in line with the demand, these factors slow down the velocity of the supply chain, further reducing supply. And that has really been the vicious cycle that the supply chain has been dealing with for the past two years. Uh, At the heart of it is really demand stimulated during the pandemic that cut into the availability of supply and and, um, uh, and and you got a really massive supply demand imbalance. Businesses have to deal with these issues and the resulting inflationary pressures. Uh, but with time, the supply chain will normalize, um, and 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 hopefully things will will get better as we move on from here. But there are also fundamental changes taking place that will permanently affect supply chains, including. You know the step change in e-commerce share of retail sales that is reshaping how we consume freight transportation, uh, the need to increase supply chain security and diversification, uh, increased focus on environmental footprint of the supply chain, a lot to cover in one hour, obviously. Uh, our panelists um, can offer significant insights into the current state of the supply chain and what will shape them going forward. Um, We have with us Phil Yeager. uh, He's president and chief operating officer of Hub Group. Uh, We have with us also uh, uh, from chairman and president of Werner Enterprise and uh, Jonathan Ahdut, president of hardware technology solution and and hypertech group. Thank you uh, all for being with us today. Um, But to start, uh why don't you all introduce yourself phil um we'll kick it off with you uh, um in terms of the uh in- introduction
3: great no thank thanks very much for uh for having me and for the opportunity today uh you know obviously as a very important topic and, and looking forward to, uh, to the discussion. As you, as you had mentioned, you know, uh, I'm Phil Yeager. I'm the President and Chief Operating Officer of Hub Group. Uh, we are a leading third-party logistics company, uh, really focused on end-to-end supply chain solutions. We're nearing about $6 billion in, in total revenue. Um, and since our, our founding by my grandparents in 1971, we've really focused on uh, supporting our customers through great service and great people. We have almost 6,000 uh, team members across North America now. Our largest offering is, is intermodal, uh, where uh, we have over 55,000 containers, three and a half thousand drivers. Uh, really focused on, on long haul truck and train transportation with a, a great service level, and we are seeing some, you know, good signs of service improvement on, on the rails, which uh, we hope is going to continue. Uh, we're also one of the top ten. Uh, largest brokerage operations in the United States, uh, offering uh, dry LTL reefer support for our customers, as well as a top three PL uh, really focusing on managed transportation, big and bulky final mile and warehousing and, and consolidation services. And what we try to do is bring all those solutions together in really a, a very seamless uh, way for our customers that helps them you know, have one, a few less things to worry about in this pretty hectic environment. So. Um, that's uh, me and hub group, but uh, really once again really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here. Thank you
2: Awesome. Thanks, Phil um, a word from you, Derek
4: Sure, thanks for having us uh, as well um, I'm uh, Derek Leathers um, the Chairman president CEO of Warner Enterprises i uh, been in the industry for about 32 years uh, Been at Warner for 24 of those um, a little bit about Warner you know we're a North American transportation and logistics company, uh, also focused heavily on kind of the end-to-end supply chain across North America. Uh, we divested from some of our international operations over the last, uh, you know, 18 months, and it really focused on that North American footprint. Uh, we have about 14,000 associates across Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Um, We uh, are a dedicated focused organization, meaning uh, dedicated represents about 63% of our fleet and growing. Um, We have a heavy retail footprint. So about 65% of what we do overall is retail oriented. um, And it's something that uh, we feel that we provide best in class service to that customer group. Uh, We also are a very large player with cross border Mexico uh, by trailer crossings per day and other metrics that we monitor. Um, we believe we're the largest cross-border operator into and out of Mexico today. Uh, and uh, the third leg of our sort of three-legged stool, if you will, is uh, in logistics. And so in the logistics business, uh, we're you know, on our way toward a billion-dollar uh, logistics franchise. Uh, should get there um, you know, middle of next year, if not sooner. Um, inside of that logistics business is predominantly brokerage. Um, With a heavy emphasis on power only as that continues to be something of greater and greater interest to our customers Um, You know our mantra around here is is really service focused service oriented with safety above all else Uh, And I'm proud of uh, the results our our folks have put up with all their hard work and diligence over the last several years And and especially during the pandemic. Thanks for having me Thanks, Derek Um,
2: Jonathan you're actually a shipper that's navigating these uh, complex supply chain issues now. Can you tell us about Hypertech, the customers you serve, and a quick description of your supply chain, maybe uh, from where you source to where you distribute your end product, et cetera? Sure, Thanks.
5: and also thank you for having me for this call. It's definitely a great opportunity to share with uh, you know, great leaders on, on the call here as well with uh, Derek and Phil. So as you said, yeah, we're, we're a tech company, right? We're a tech infrastructure company, uh, we provide, you know, through multiple business units, we have a wide range of uh, cutting-edge infrastructure technology products and services. The business unit I run, which is Hardware Technology Solutions, or HTS, we design, build, deploy, and support c- computer hardware with a primary focus on servers and storage devices. So basically, we would be a customer of Phil's or Der- Derrick's when you think about how we actually distribute those products. Now, our customers are in our mix of industries, you know, we're talking cloud communication, financial services, media, media, entertainment, healthcare, and public sector verticals. We're talking about more than 3,000 customers in more than 80 countries or 450 data centers, because like I said, most of what we ship are servers and storage. Now, where we source, you know, technology is mainly sourced out of Asia. There's a lot that comes out of Asia, but we also source out of North America and Europe. That's really at the component level. When you think of subcomponent, you know, it's, you know, you're looking at different regions within Asia, so components typically come from China and Taiwan, it's the majority of where we source the components. But when you think about the sub-components that make up those components, those can also come from Japan and Singapore. Uh, so when you're thinking about that from a you know a, a supply chain and freight perspective, you see how it can get quite complex where we're bringing things in from Asia and then shipping it across the globe. So when you think of an end customer perspective, again, it's really across the globe: North America, EMEA, APAC, and Latin America. But you know the majority of our customer base, the majority of those 3,000 customers are based out of the U.S., which is
2: our largest market. Thank you for having me. Okay, thanks, uh, Jonathan. Um, Let's kick it off with a few topics here. So um, I talked earlier about the state of the supply chain and supply-demand imbalances we are experiencing and really across air, sea, and land modes across the board. Uh, What have been some of the key challenges for you since the pandemic started Phil let's start with you
3: first yeah great no thank you um you know i I would start with I think you know our team has just done a phenomenal job stepping up for our customers uh, throughout the pandemic and uh, you know it's uh, been you know amazing to see how we've all rallied around uh, really making sure our customers are are succeeding but i as I think about challenges you know I think first and foremost was the the whipsaw of of demand, right? When you think about when the pandemic started and, uh, you know, the closures and and really lack of demand that was out there uh, to what has been really a a multi-year sort of significant growth uh, in in shipping demand uh, coming really close after that. And I think what you saw was uh, a lot of Customers really tightened the belt, Uh, a lot of a lot of companies in our industry really tightened, um, you know, and and didn't necessarily invest to the level that was going to be required. Uh, to uh, support that demand that was coming back so quickly. And so, um, you know, we did our best to continue to to grow, continue to invest. Uh, I think we did a nice job there. But as an industry, we definitely were uh, not, we didn't have the the capacity available to support that demand. And and I think for us, we want to make sure we're stepping up And and supporting our customers and giving them realistic expectations as well, because we don't want to overcommit and and make sure that there's so we can make sure they're set up for success. Um, You know, the second thing, and I'm sure everybody has has struggled with this is is, uh, hiring. Right. And, uh, you know, I think for us, both on our drivers, but, uh, you know, in our office staff as well and in warehouses, um, it's been a very competitive uh, hiring sort of time. And uh, and I think we've done well, once again, being able to continue to add drivers, continue to grow our team of associates. But uh, it has certainly been competitive and something we've had to get creative in our uh, processes to make sure that we're bringing in the right people that fit our culture and, you know, but also being able to support the growth that's coming at us. So um, if I if I look at those two, you know, those, those would probably be the biggest ones that stand out. But uh, uh, you know, there's there's certainly others that are out there. But all in all feel very very strongly that we did a great job you know kind of managing through this and supporting our clients
2: okay thanks phil um warner has also had a obviously first-hand look at domestic shipping and you're you're heavily involved in that uh can you talk to us also about some of what you're seeing on your end derek
4: i'm sure um (laughs) <laughs> to, to be frank, it might be easier to talk about what hasn't changed since twenty twenty than what all has changed uh, just because as Phil's already indicated, I mean, we've been through um, you know a very uh, strong whipsaw of uh, demand to supply inflection. Um I don't want to repeat what he's already covered. I think he did it well. Um I do I will double down on some of the labor availability issues, both on driver uh, but across really the entire spectrum. I think one thing that that's played into that we've seen since 2020 that's interesting is a time of, in a time of very tight capacity, in a time um, when there was a lot of struggles uh, for shippers to find uh, the available capacity they needed. Um, I think it's important to note that we've seen an increase in inefficiencies at shippers and receivers really across the nation. Uh, I think it's driven by the same labor challenges. So not pointing fingers here, it's just a reality. The turn, time, turn times and dwell times have increased, if you will, across both container and trailer uh, throughout North America. And I think that's a way that we all can collectively find uh, greater efficiencies as, as we try to get back to normalized operations at uh, shippers and receivers. Uh, there's been significant disruptions over the last couple of years in both the availability and then the reliability, I would argue, of new equipment as well as parts. And so we're in the business of uh, you know moving freight, and it, it is still mechanical machines that do that every day. And uh, the availability of that equipment has been disrupted at, at levels I've never seen before, especially for this extended period of time. and then and and that affects uptime and and that affects reliability of the supply chain. Uh, we've seen a further widening of the gap between what I would call winning customers and and maybe those that are struggling within their own business models Uh, i think the uh, pandemic really exposed um the differences between uh, strong winning models strong winning models with winning management teams as compared to those businesses that may have already had some cracks around the edges uh, prior to the pandemic those 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 cracks were further exposed Uh, and then the last thing is just uh, at a time that all of this Disruption was going on. I think all of us have been faced with the the need to, and, and certainly our desire to continue to invest in tech at a rate that that also is sort of unprecedented. And so that tech arms race continues and will continue, I think, for the next several years, as as every organization tries to find its sort of true north relative to giving customers, um, you know, not just what they expect, but really exceeding those expectations in terms of transparency tracking and. And optimization of their networks.
2: Great, thanks uh, for that, Derek. Uh, Jonathan, um, you can probably bring a little bit of an international kind of angle to this. What what has been kind of some of the key challenges you've seen on your end?
5: It's been it's been a roller coaster. I think you know, echoing with uh, with with Phil and Derek said. I mean. You know, for us in the tech industry, we're used to seeing shortages, right? This is not the first shortage or supply chain constraint we've seen in the tech industry. You know, there's always going to be a single component or raw material shortages that happen like pretty much on a regular basis in the IC and semiconductor world. I think a major difference with COVID was the sheer quantity of different components and raw materials that supply constraints combined with the factors we were mentioned before, freight and labor, right? Those are the things that really made it uh, what we all kind of agree is the largest and worst supply chain issue in the history of the tech infrastructure industry. Uh, it's kind of a, a, an interesting evolution that, that occurred. 2020, when, when COVID started, you know, I think it's what happened, what, why the tech industry was disrupted was a totally different reason than why it was disrupted in 21 or 22. 2020 was a sudden spike in demand for IT infrastructure to support the massive migration to remote working, right? Remote working you know, kind of got turned on in a major way overnight, right? And that led to a massive kind of uh, you know, supply chain constraints for those components. You, if you tried to find a laptop in April of 2020, good luck, right? It wasn't happening. So combine this with factory shutdowns. So obviously, everyone was, was not knowing what COVID was, was going to happen with COVID across the globe. And so those factories were being shut down. Freight was being delayed by labor shortages. COVID-related absenteeism and labor strikes, and finally, natural disasters. I think we forget how many natural disasters occurred in the last few years. It really created this perfect storm of issues in the tech industry in 2020. Now, though this lead, did lead to a pretty mat, big disruption in global supply chain, hyper as you know, hypertech didn't get impacted too much. We did incur higher costs in labor and freight, but we had already kind of prepared us. So we were a little more ready for 2020 than let's just say the future years. So it didn't impact our ability to deliver so much in 2020. I do, I do definitely uh, you know, applaud our team. They did a great job managing this, but 2020 wasn't bad. Really, when you think of 21 and 22 is when it really started getting uh, bad for the tech industry and hypertech. I think that uh, when you look at 2021 as a total new factor that kind of uh, introduced itself, two new demand drivers surprised the markets. One is you have the economic recovery and resulting increased demand. So you saw this increased demand out of nowhere for, for semiconductors another sub uh, you know, subcomponents. Then uh, another one that we were not able to, the like, thing we as the industry, the growing transition from just-in-time inventory positions that most customers were taking pre-COVID, to customers now favoring the hoarding of inventory to avoid you know, being, being stuck in a position where they don't have enough, which led to artificial demand peaks. We had like a, you know, demand coming from, not necessarily real demand, they're kind of pl- placing orders just in case to protect themselves from another issue. And that just created more shortages across the, the supply chain. And when I say supply chain, we're talking you know the, the main manufacturers and fabs in Asia. When you look at freight, you know, when you saw this increased demand, you know, the more North American port infrastructure was not adequate to meet the needs of these new high shipping volumes. Add the continued labor shortages and the backlog of vessels berthing off the West coast, and general co- container availability, we're seeing greater supply chain disruptions in 21 over 2020. And where that started impacting us was growing backlog of customer orders. We started seeing customer orders come in, but not going out, right? Because we had you know, specific gating of subcomponents. 2022, though early 2022 you know, showed signs of improvement on the availability of raw materials for key components, uh, as well as improved freight rates. I think we saw an improvement in freight rates in January, 2022, I recall this specifically. There's several new factors that made it worse. You saw the uh, obviously the Russia-Ukraine war start in February, and then probably the single biggest event that affected us in the tech industry is the China, you know, the China, you know, kind of pandemic approach, which was you know the zero COVID policy, which is ongoing by the way in China, where they you know just closed a bunch of factories. So a lot of our components and subcomponents were just simply not available anymore or, or not accessible. So you had those factors that kind of you know extended the the issue of not being able to fulfill customer orders. And, you know, we're, you know, though we're seeing encouraging signs uh, for those constrained component categories, it, it was uh, certainly painful. Uh, and I can say that that was really how it kind of played out uh, during the pandemic for us. Hey, Fadi, Thanks,
1: we're, Fadi, we're hearing uh, if there's like a um, computer notification that's gone off a few times, I think it's from your end.
3: So Would you be able to close that program or browser?
2: Okay, okay, I have not heard it from my end, but I'll close my notification. Um, Okay. So, um, yeah, thanks guys for these um, answers. So, I I wanted to take this conversation kind of on the demand side, Uh, you know, we're seeing macroeconomic data kind of moderate a little bit. Obviously, uh, we're all uh, watching the same things. we're also seeing consumer beginning to shift spending a little bit more towards services from goods following the pandemic. And uh, we have also seen several e-commerce companies and parcel shipping companies um, seeing, you know, moderating volume, even declining year on year volume. And we have a federal uh, a, uh, reserve that is really determined on slowing demand to control inflation all signs of flowing demand ahead. Um, maybe you can kind of give us some insight into um, what are you seeing on the demand side from your customers? Phil, starting with you, you have a lot of uh, exposure for uh, customers in the consumer space. W- what do you have been seeing on, on the demand side and how do you see things going into the yeah. next six to 12 months maybe?
3: Great yeah no and, and um you know we're we're about forty five percent retail e commerce call it thirty percent uh consumer products, so certainly have a, a heavy weighting towards the consumer and you know it, to be honest we have seen a a really uh strong continuation of demand in particular in the ports, both east and west, and i um you know, I think we're gonna continue to see that through the remainder. Of this year, uh, you know, consumer continues to be, you know, in our view, you know, relatively strong with still high savings rates. And, um, you know, although inventories have increased, as you, you heard from, from Target and from others, you know, still there, it, it's, it's some of the wrong inventory. And so that will need to be replenished to make sure that they have the right things in the store and in their e-commerce network to, to support demand. I think you throw in, uh, the reopening of, of China off of COVID lockdowns, uh, you know, you, you throw in a port negotiation in, in LA Long Beach. We think congestion will still be there. Um, our largest business intermodal is still seeing a, a ton of demand, um, mostly in longer haul lanes as in particular with the higher fuel prices. Um, that we're seeing out there. Uh, Intermodal is just a much more fuel efficient way of moving goods. And so there's a lot of savings associated with that. But we're also seeing customers want to lock in Uh, with partners to guarantee capacity. And uh, I think that is going to continue as well, given the last couple of years of disruption. Now, I I completely agree there. are Certainly storm clouds, you know, as you look beyond uh, 2022, potentially, um, you know, with with interest rates and and, uh, inventories getting higher. um, But, uh, you know, at the same time, in the near term, we're feeling very confident that it's going to be, you know, continue to be a strong demand environment for the remainder of the year
2: thanks phil uh how about uh things on your end derek um any freight segments doing um uh differently than other seas yeah
4: sure um and when we think about segments um you know i'll start with this i think uh you know when we we live in a world where somebody sees a report or to about a few retailers that maybe missed their numbers or struggled to to be where they thought they'd be at this point in the cycle. And uh, we tend to cast a wide net with how we interpret that and think that that means retail overall is struggling or that the consumer has stopped engaging. Um, we don't see that that way in our network. And so within our network, you know, we are heavy in the dis- discount retail space. And so as these inflationary pressures rise, we see more and more people uh, kind of trading down into dis- discount retail or cheaper alternatives. Uh, and that we think that bodes well for demand overall with those winning kind of models that do well in these environments. Home improvement has stayed very strong through the pandemic and stays strong still today and looks and has pretty uh, bullish outlooks as they look forward. Um, others that maybe uh, I think are really suffering from a temporary issue uh, like food and beverage has been off a little uh, year to date and I think it's driven by frankly cooler temps and, uh, and, and worse weather. Uh, we've Done some pretty exhaustive uh, work on uh, overall weather trends year over year, uh, kind of nationally, and um, found some interesting, you know, kind of anecdotal information. But you know, where you know the, the amount of increased just bad days, so very heavily windy days, or overcast, or, or or cooler days, has really impacted things like food and beverage. But as soon as things now are, you know, heating up, no pun intended, um, they are they're seeing those uh, those uh, consumers come back. Uh, Clearly, durable goods uh, are showing some signs of weakness uh, overall, but I I think, to be fair, it's hard to separate what part of that is due to inflationary pressures or budgetary constraints and what part of it is that people are just tired of waiting eight months for a washer um, or a dryer or a sofa. And I think there comes a point where people are just not able to make those kind of decisions and then wait around eight months to receive it, so they'll instead repair the one they have. And and so I think there's a, a little bit of white noise in some of the data. But overall, uh, you know, I'm where Phil's at. Uh, we still see a consumer that is engaged and although inflation is clearly going to provide pressure on uh, their ability to spend over time, it sort of gets overlooked how um, dramatically the financial health of the average US consumer improved during COVID. Savings rates are up considerably, overall debt load is down considerably, and although upticked uh, recently, still below pre-pandemic levels. And so we have confidence the consumer will Stay uh, more engaged than maybe the media gives them credit for. Uh, and our outlook for the remainder of the year is similar to Phil's. Uh, we still think and see our network being uh, pretty pretty robust right now, and uh, freight bookings uh, remaining strong.
2: Great feedback, thank you. Um, I want to shift uh, to labor uh, situation. You know, it's a challenge. I think you all mentioned at the beginning of this call. So. Um, market still feels very tight right now, but truck hiring has somewhat picked up in recent months and employment uh, levels have improved, um, so the industry seems to have kind of seen uh, some improvement on that front over the last few months. Uh, maybe starting with you, Derek, what has Werner been doing to attract and retain drivers and what the situation is like on the labor front now?
4: Uh, sure, you, you, it's certainly been one of the roughest labor markets I've ever been a part of over the last two years. And uh, you're right; there are some statistics that would point towards some easing uh, over the last couple months. Uh, I would argue, if you dig deeper into those statistics, though, what you find is a a significant increase in what I'd call straight truck, local truck, dray uh, truck, um, and and like home delivery in a in a van and or straight truck and a much lesser increase and actually still at pre-pand- lower than pre-pandemic levels in that over-the-road truck driver type of role. So tightness is still uh, out there in that space and I think will remain. Uh, what are we doing? I mean, we're focusing on giving our drivers the highest quality equipment we possibly can, making sure our pay is competitive. Um, but I'd tell you that our, our biggest focus is probably on lifestyle, really leaning into meeting drivers where they're at, in terms of where their desires are and trying to build a lifestyle that is is not like that, which is often reported on. You know, it's always interesting to me that that when you, you'll see articles from time to time saying, you know, there's no driver shortage, there's just a pay problem or a lifestyle problem. And then they quote statistics that are three to four years old at least, and sometimes older than that. And so they talk about average driver wages at $45,000. Well, that job doesn't exist and nobody's paying $45,000 to a driver today. Um, they talk about drivers being out three weeks at a time, and that job is is very rarefied error. Yes, it exists, but it's not the common job that any trucker's hiring for today. Uh, so lifestyle customization has been an industry focus. It's certainly going a focus at Warner. Uh, we spent a lot of time expanding our training programs. Uh, training has predicted... <coughs> Excuse me. We've... <laughs> We've spent a lot of time expanding our training programs and training has specifically always focused on safety. And so we haven't shortened any of that focus, but we've expanded what training means now here a great deal to include a lot of sort of life on the road, training, lifestyle support, lifestyle training. That's been, uh, I think, beneficial. Um, and then our vertically integrated school network is a huge part of our long-term strategy. We, we operate the largest school network in America. We have, absolute confidence that those drivers graduate better prepared with with uh, better skills than drivers uh, that we may source from other um, uh, uh, methods. Um, something we're very bullish on our ability to continue to produce a more and more polished driver over time coming out of that school network. And then the last piece is uh, uh, just leaning into the strengths of Warner as it relates to some of the creative alliances we've built over time. So, you know we're fast approaching one in four of our drivers being former military, and our relationships we've built with the Department of Defense and and with military bases across the country have served us well. We have over doubled the national average of female drivers in our fleet, uh, and we've really been able to produce a product that, that female drivers find driving for Warner to be comfortable and 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 rewarding work. And so I think that number will actually probably increase over time. Uh, you put all that together and really what it allows you to do is kind of hold serve nobody's growing by leaps and bounds right now with organically at least with their truck count and and if, and most fleets are actually still down pre-pandemic to present uh, at least over the larger fleets because that's how tough this qualified driver market has become uh, there's a lot of folks holding cdls but they're not necessarily employable in the industry based on driving records or or criminal convictions or other things in their backgrounds Um, And so those are things that we'll just keep navigating and uh, trying to win. And uh, we've been able to grow some organically, uh, which has been pretty rare uh, if you look across the competitive landscape.
2: Great. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Phil, how about Hub? Uh, I mean, you have probably, um, you know, a lot of kind of triage, local deliveries, kind of traffic in your network. How's that uh, driver situation been for you?
3: Yeah, no, um, you know, it, it's certainly been uh, challenging, just like, like everybody else has uh, has experienced. You know, um, we have been adding drivers so far this year on a weekly basis and seeing some good trends there. But I think, you know, it's really starting with uh, competitive pay. We have moved our, our pay up in, in several markets 20 to 30 percent, um, some even more than that um, over the past, you know, several months. And. Uh, that you have to I think that's table stakes at this point. You obviously need to be competitive from that perspective. Um, beyond that, you mentioned our our business is typically shorter haul. Um, our drivers are home most nights, pretty much every night, um, and we're also trying to position with them the career trajectory that they could have into roles uh, in management at the organization by, uh, you know, being with us for several years and showing their commitment and understanding the operations, but also being a leader within uh, our fleets and terminals um, you know, we also are really highlighting the age of our fleet uh, we've invested significantly gotten by the end of the year we 'll be down to about a two point three uh, average age uh, a year uh, in our in our fleet uh, at the end of this year. So you know one of the newer fleets in our industry, and we think that really benefits uh, our drivers with great safety technology, but also just a, a really nice drive as well fewer m and r issues and uh, and really helps to uh, make sure they're having that strong quality of life. Uh, you know, I think along the, those other lines, you know, we've been trying to do the same things around making sure our training is is expedited, but also very effective. That we have great benefits uh, for our drivers, that they see that career path, that they're a part of our team, uh, but also just operationally making sure we're planning them, that they're that they're able to make the wage that they they should, um, and uh, and that our customers are supported supporting us and moving our drivers along as well. I think that's been a great. Uh, discussion we've had with a lot of our clients is how do we make sure that our drivers are being optimally utilized Um, whether it's running shuttles whether it's moving more to a drop and hook sort of program uh, all those things help make our drivers more fluid Um, getting rid of uh, you know kind of big chunks of paperwork that we need to bring when we're making a delivery and moving that to more of a automated tablet uh, and, and email uh, driven workflow, all those things help our drivers be faster, more nimble, uh, and have a more productive day, which makes them want to stay with Hub uh, for the long term. So, you know, it is a it is a challenging problem. There's a lot of nuances and a lot of effort being put behind it. I also believe, you know, like Derek mentioned, it is an industry problem that we need to solve over, over the long term. But, you know, I think companies like Werner and Hub are uh, trying to do the right things to, to attract and retain uh, those drivers.
2: Okay, I want to stay with you a little bit more, Phil. Um, on the intermodal side, I mean, we're seeing those labor um, challenges for railroad partners of yours uh, that are having a tough time adding train crews. How is that impacting your intermodal solution on the service side and on the capacity side? And, and, and do you see things getting better from this point or is it still very challenging?
3: well uh it it almost has to get better uh, from from this point to to be honest uh i think we we hit a floor um you know and have seen us um really stay stable in the service that our, our rail providers are giving us. Now our transits are still very elongated, which is leading to a slower turn time of our equipment. Um, that takes capacity out of out of the network. Um, most of that is rail delays, but we obviously can be better on the street. Our customers can help us turn our capacity faster. So we're really focusing on the things that we can control. Um, but you know, it has been a challenging environment. We are seeing hopefully signs of, of recovery in the hiring side, which will lead to a better service product. Um, I we have elongated our transits to our customers, which, you know, once again, uh, is, is going to slow down our network, but allows us to give a higher assurance on our on time performance. So we have seen actually on our raw on time performance to our customers a significant improvement on a year over year basis. But most of that is driven really by, uh, going to our customers and giving more realistic transits, which, you know, in an, in an environment where, uh, so inventories are more replenished, that's more acceptable and palatable from a from a supply chain perspective versus where we've been as of late um, with uh, inventories in recovery. Uh, the need for a faster transit was, was much higher. So that we think is going to be another piece that continues to drive intermodal conversion, even if we are running a little bit slower, is the fuel cost, as well as not as much of a need to expedite all of the deliveries into uh, into their network. So um, for us, you know, continuing to see a ton of demand, um, as, as I mentioned, in particular in the ports, and what well, we are we are seeing some really nice signs of improvement in the east. We need to see some more in the west, but uh, at least stable uh, at this point in time.
2: Good, okay, thanks, Phil. Um, but Jonathan, I'm trying to bring you in here on this topic. Obviously, Hypertech is impacted. You know, both directly and indirectly, by by some of the challenges that Phil and Derek uh, talked about with labor. Um, are there other labor vulnerabilities you're seeing in the supply chain? How are you minimizing the disruption? Um, any, uh, any 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 uh, feedback you can provide to us?
5: Yes, yeah, so I think you got it right. Right, it's both. Uh, You know, it's indirect and direct, right? So you have the indirect external, which is all the factors we mentioned before, uh, you know, with the the vendor, you know, our our manufacturers or vendors having labor shortages driven mostly by COVID-related factory closures. And then obviously all the freight elements that, you know, Derek and Phil have been covering. Uh, When you think of direct internal labor, though, like, you know, people that work for Hypertech. Uh, you know, we did have, obviously, periods of higher than normal absenteeism led by strict, uh, you know, COVID-related protocols you know, through the, throughout the pandemic. I can say, you know, similar to what everyone else is saying, the most impactful issue has been you know, really a lack of availability of skilled workers, right? Uh, we're seeing this, you know, it, it's, it's something that's it's a phenomenon that's played out in a way that I don't think uh, many of us expected. You know, kind of this an acceleration of, you know, more people retiring, uh, less access to skilled workers in general, uh, and, you know, we're seeing this happening in a few key departments in our in our uh, in our group, talking about like engineering, manufacturing, warehouse workers. We've had, we've had a lot of trouble kind of, uh, you know, finding the right type of uh, skilled workers. Clearly, the uh, the kind of growth of e-commerce and everything that's going on around that. And, and when I'm saying e-commerce, I'm talking about really, you know, Amazon and other and other uh, companies like that has also created some pressure for some of those uh, jobs as well, because we do have similar roles within our organization. Now, even if that has been the largest factor, uh, we've we've done many investments to kind of minimize uh, you know the issues and the impact of those uh, of that labor shortage. Uh, you know, when you think about you know what we had to do to kind of uh, deal with it, uh, you know, we actually looked at uh, you know investing heavily in, in training and development. I think that uh, you know helping current employees and new employees grow within the organization has definitely been. Very beneficial and helpful in, in being able to mitigate this. Uh, investment employee engagement so there's many different initiatives that our you know HR team has done to kind of make the experience at hypertech you know better and we feel that that has, has helped retention. There's pay and benefits. There's no doubt that the market did see uh, you know an impact there and in some cases pretty substantial on on what that looks like uh, from a benchmark perspective. Uh, and then you know when we talk about inflation, that's all kind of tied to it. Uh, we did invest also in infrastructure automation. So oftentimes, you know, doing, you know, some of the work we do is manual, right? Some of the work we do in the manufacturing space is manual. And the more we can automate it, make it more pleasant to do, make it uh, safer, uh, that has helped with retention and satisfaction. We've also restructured our organization. You know, I think, you know, this labor market issue, I don't think is going away. I think it is going to be a continued issue to deal with. And, you know, I think companies need to be creative in the way they approach it. Right. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, Phil and Derek mentioned some really creative ways in the way they're dealing with it. The way we've done it is that we kind of decentralized some of the critical functions to diversify you know, where we actually need those skilled labor people, right? So, you know, oftentimes when you see a labor shortage, you know, some markets are affected more than others. So it's really a matter of kind of not putting all the eggs in the same basket and decentralizing you know, where those critical functions need to operate. So that's something we've enabled. And we actually enabled that in 21 and we've seen a lot of benefits uh, from that implementation. So what we've noticed with all this is actually it's increased employee satisfaction despite all that cloud of COVID that's been over their heads. Our retention rates have gone up and we've minimized labor disruptions. That's really the key. But uh, probably most importantly is driven efficiency. You know, in years where it's been difficult to uh, really bill uh, and invoice customers, given the supply chain constraints, efficiency was key. And we actually saw efficiency at the labor, uh, at the labor side despite the higher wages and everything. So I think that, that's definitely been a success. Uh, on the side
2: of HyperTech. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Um, shifting over to inflation, um, you know, you, you know, there were, I mentioned earlier, you know, pay, pay, uh, pay, inflation in the order of thirty percent. And obviously, there are other other things that are also inflating within the cost structure, uh, you know, fuel and others, obviously. Um, can we uh, kind of discuss a little bit uh, what you're seeing on that front, how your ability to pass on these inflationary cost pressure to uh, the uh, consumer down the line? Um, you know, obviously with demand moderating, I think there's a little bit of risk here that, you know, the pricing um, you know moderate at probably the worst time when the inflation remains a little bit too high. Uh, starting off with you, Derek, um, you know, there's, like I said, a lot of factors that feed into the rising costs, labor and fuel and other. How are you trying to minimize those increases and how much of that increase are you, are your customers able to absorb?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, as far as how we try to minimize them, obviously, like, well, I'll take them one at a time. But on the fuel side, you know, we're doing everything we can to lower our environmental footprint, increase our MPG um, make sure we're running and, as lean as we can and fill as many empty miles as we possibly can. So that at a minimum, you know, as we think about that that line in the P&L, it's, it's is, is mo- the, the vast majority of every mile driven needs to be revenue producing. And so, um, you know, Wolf said at any given time on our one-way network and, you know, call it low double digits of empty miles in total. And when you think about a shrinking length of haul that increasingly is sub 500 miles, if you've got less than you know 10 or around 10 to 12% empty miles, you know, you're know you already highly efficient. You're essentially going from one side of a city to another side of the city uh, to pick up that next load more often than not. So uh, a lot of focus there, a lot of focus on uh, dedicated backhauls and making sure that we do everything we can to increase the revenue share opportunities for our customers to lower their overall spend. But there are inflationary items up and down the p and I mean, labor and fuel are the two big ones. You've already spoke about those. Uh, but equipment's not getting any cheaper, and parts availability um, is is very disrupted. And so what happens is people do what people do, including us, which is they go out and try to secure greater availabilities and deploy more inventory across their network to make sure they're, uh, they can impact uptime and lower overall operational costs. But that comes at the expense of higher procurement costs of those parts. Um, the increased uh, focus on lifestyle across the industry, I think, is one thing that's been very much overlooked. Uh, in terms of how much productivity it's taken out, the publicly traded uh, carrier group, on average, is down 12% in productivity from before the pandemic till present, and many carriers are down, you know, mid-double digits. Um, and there's many things that, that that are involved in that. You know, the uptime issue because of parts availability I already talked about, there, the congestion on the highways as people are returned to normal lives. But but honestly, the largest single piece of that is is design. It's it's engineering more lifestyle into the job and getting people home more often and that does raise your overall cost per mile but if you don't do it you're not going to have this tractor seated to begin with and there's going to be a bigger issue um, the last one i I'd, I'd probably point to is you know the ongoing pressure on the insurance and claims line uh, carriers like warner and hub and others are, uh, are making tremendous progress in the frequency of accidents and even greater progress on the severity of accidents and have done so for many years um, and yet uh, the cost of insurance continues to rise regardless because of nuclear verdicts and these outlier type uh, outcomes that happen in in the courtroom. And I think uh, it's uh, not all you know all that well understood that when uh, some of these verdicts go as nuclear as they do, it ends up in the cost of goods uh, because you, it has to end up somewhere, and it's it's not free money. Um, and uh, And we've got to continue to focus on a safer and safer future, and we will. Um, but there's always still going to be these days where um, decisions are made inside of a courtroom that, that that are very hard to follow or understand in terms of the, the, the awards that are that are coming out of those uh, courtrooms at times. And uh, that's an inflationary pressure. As far as how do customers support us, I think they're very supportive of uh, the, the real linear um, uh, items like driver pay. They understand that in order to seat a truck, we have to pay more. In order to pay more, we have to receive more. And so the beauty of our model is that with 63, 64% of our fleet and dedicated, you know, we're making that decision jointly with them. You know, we need to pay this fleet more money. Here's why. And what do you, how do you feel about it? And, and, and then what else can we do to improve lifestyle outside of pay so that we may not have to pay as much, but, but the driver's actually more satisfied. And so we're doing everything we can, you know, and, and, and I think in the domestic front, at least, it, although rates have been up, and there's there, there's no doubt that there has been inflationary pressure on rates, it pales by comparison to what's happened with rates, um, you know, in the ocean networks and other places. So you're not you're not seeing uh, domestic truckload rates go from twenty five hundred dollars to twenty thousand, but you do see that in certain ocean rates. And so, uh, our argument to make is a little easier path when we're we're really having a rational discussion with our customer about needing their support. To be able to continue to support them.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks, Derek. Jonathan, um, I guess from your end, what, how are you dealing with these inflationary cost issues? I guess that you're seeing on the supply chain side, but also, you know, perhaps across your PNL as well.
5: So I think for us, I mean, you know. Since the business was founded nearly forty years ago, I think we we've really prided ourselves on building relationships with our customers based on trust and with our customers knowing that regardless of the market conditions, we'll always price our products and service competitively, right? And any price increases we pass on will be justified and reasonable. I think you it seems obvious, but unfortunately we live in an industry where some, you know, some companies will take advantage of situations like this and see as opportunities to drive higher margins. Because, you know, tech is critical to the customers' infrastructure, right? So you know, you're in a leveraged position sometimes when they can't find it elsewhere, right? And that's something that you know, we really pride ourselves on really making sure that we, you know, whatever price increases we have, we're very transparent about them, and, you know, and we justify them so we understand what they are. So that's definitely contributed heavily in our ability to recover these costs, right? And consider that these costs, the main drivers are raw materials. Uh, you know, you're talking about freight, you're talking about direct labor, so that you know, they're pretty easy to quantify, right? So you know, we've had a not so hard of a time you know, claiming that back. Now, that being said, We've seen some exposure more related to increases in support fulfillment costs. So when we, after we ship out a system, you know, after, let's say it breaks, we do need to go and fix it. So usually you, you you factor in your warranty costs at the start of the at the start of the period when you actually sell the gear, and those warranty periods can range between three and five years. So obviously you can't adjust that on the fly. You know, you do incur those costs, and obviously all the costs related to admin and overhead, which is you know driven primarily by freight and wage increases. So I think. That has really been, the costs have been difficult to mitigate because though we end up adjusting our price, which again, justifiable and reasonable, uh, you can't predict how these costs are going to you know, kind of trend ahead of time. It's very difficult to predict exactly how they're going to increase. So a lot of times the adjustments are only done prospectively, right? So we do get impacted in the short term in those instances. So really given that approach to our customer management, I can't say that this has been a major issue Obviously we do see short-term impact on the P&L, which is kind of expected. But in the long run, I think that, uh, you know, I I don't see any concern for the inflation, how it affects our ability to recharge our customers.
2: Great, thanks. Um, I want to shift over quickly to um, technology and how you're using technology to, you know, improve the supply chain, improve service, maybe. Um, Maybe uh, we can start up with you, uh, Jonathan, Uh, how how is Hypertech using technology and innovating to uh, improve the supply chain?
5: So look, innovation is definitely a key value here at Hypertech, right? It's always been the heart of our business. And when we think of innovation, I think a lot of us think of you know some new technology or or some new uh, you know kind of something that's fancy and, and nice. But you know it's 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 across the board. It could be a process-related matter. It could be the way we approach supply chain. You know, it's in every aspect of our business, we really try to adopt a, you know an innovative approach. When the supply chain issue hit us in 2020, right, uh, you know due to COVID, we were able to leverage some of the key strategies, you know, in regards to our, you know to our supply chain, be it redundancy. Or our, our global reach that really helped us counter the effects of the shortages. Now that really helped us get through 2020, and uh, we understood quickly that as the as the market kind of shifted, we needed to pivot to be able to deal with the headwinds that are coming up in 21, and then again in 22. Uh, so the way we kind of approached it is that you know it, it's really kind of pivoting towards expanding our, our our global vendor base. So that was key. And when I say expanding our global vendor base, it's not only the direct vendors, also their vendors, so the subcomponent vendors as well. That's something we do that others do not do, where we really start sourcing the subcomponents for our actual vendors. Uh, we increase our inventory retention strategies, and we're a manufacturer, so you know, really buying ahead of time key inventories is, is really the key to kind of help uh, alleviate some of the supply chain issues. Uh, and we also expanded our authorized vendor list. So you know, when a customer is buying, we've been promoting. Obviously, we've always been promoting having multiple sources for every component. But we kind of went on the, that whole initiative uh, kind of went on steroids. We, we took it to a different degree where we really sat down with each customer and really proposed all these different vendors they can work with to kind of limit the impact of the supply chain. Now, from a technology perspective, though, we did implement additional automation tools saw improved process really around our you know, supplier CRM, our focus has been more, more on the innovation of our products. So we actually changed the way we develop products so that we select components that are even more common, obviously always making sure we have multiple sources for each component, and also reduce our dependency on you know, overseas vendors, overseas vendors, right? That was really one of the biggest things we did. And it actually not only led to better access to components, but also increased sustainability in the sense that we had reduced carbon footprint by you know, reducing the amount of things that need to be shipped across the ocean. Now, overall, I've been you know, I'm very satisfied with what our team was able to accomplish, You know, these approaches have helped us significantly mitigate the market conditions such that we're actually achieving industry leading shipping to booking ratios. That's a key metric in our industry right now, given that, you know, there are certain components that you just can't get. You know, seeing how much booking you're getting, how many bookings you're getting versus how much you're actually delivering. We're really leading uh, the pack in in that regard. And we're actually outperforming some of the largest players by more than 50 percent. So I think we've done a great job kind of managing uh, a lot of what's been going on and using, you know, our innovation as a way of doing it.
2: Great. That's fantastic. Um, Phil, how is Hub using technology?
3: Yeah. So, uh, you know, what we talk about at Hub is innovating with purpose. So, making sure that there's a an application or return, um, you know, on the investment that we're making in technology. Um, you know, shiny objects you know we, we certainly want to be you know pushing technology on, on the edge but we also want to make sure that we're we're being uh, practical and thoughtful in, in what we're doing and make sure that it's going to bring value for our key stakeholders of you know our customers our team members our vendors um, so you know I'll give you some examples of things that we're doing but you know it, we've had satellite tracking in our fleet uh, of fifty five thousand containers for several years now and you uh, We're really focusing on leveraging that technology, using it to make our drivers more efficient when they're in a rail ramp, showing them exactly on a satellite image where the container is that they're looking for. And if that one's not available, actually giving them an alternative to go grab while they're in the ramp so they're not having to sit around and wait, um, really making them more efficient. Uh, We've also used that to automate billing with our customers. Uh, by geofencing their facilities and showing them the load and unload times and when we're entering a facility to automate that billing process, take one more step out of the chain, one more thing where they don't have to have a a person walking around doing a yard check of how many hub containers do I have today, really not utilizing a person to their optimal uh, sort sort of uh, contribution. Um, I'd say along with that, we've set up fast passes with our, our rail partners to get our drivers in and out faster. We've used our tablets to take paperwork out with our customers and have e BOLs versus a, a paper BOL. Um, you know, other across our, our teams and all, all all of our office associates, we've implemented you know RPA's to help take out the multiple touches we need to do re-entering information into a customer website or uh, you know being on a load board and manually bidding. We we to put APIs in place to automate that bidding process. So for us, it's all about that um, incremental improvements that are going to make us more efficient, make our team more efficient, make our customers better, uh, and and be the easiest to do business with. And, And probably the biggest investment that we've made in the last several years, along with integrating all of our ERPs and getting onto a single operating platform, is our, our customer-facing technology, and we really think that we're best in class there. And that's why we've seen the outsourced logistics portion of our business grow so phenomenally, is customers feel as though even though they've outsourced their logistics to Hub, they also feel as though they have that control and information on a day-to-day basis that they require to still feel confident in that. So, so really uh, you know, focusing on those practical applications and around the ex- uh, team experience.
2: Okay, thanks, Phil. But Derek, um, on to you. What, how, how are like? What are the technology lever you're using or processes uh, in your company?
4: Yeah, so here at Warner, it's it, a lot of it is going to sound redundant because it's very similar to what Phil just talked about. But it's about you know making sure we stay on the leading edge, but not the bleeding edge. Making sure that we stay away from the shiny objects, as he referenced. Uh, there's a lot of desire always to make um, uh, life easier internally, but but we always try to focus on making sure that we do that. But with an eye toward our customer, like we need to make the customer's ability to interact with us uh, easier and easier over time. We're obviously looking at a lot of lean principles around here and trying to eliminate unnecessary steps and processes wherever we can and then further take that next step and then automate everything that's able to be automated uh, so that we can really kind of move people's roles up the value chain into more productive things where all that experience and, and knowledge that they have bring to the role is actually able to be utilized versus doing kind of redundant repetitive tasks. Uh, we've recently announced investments in both mastery from a underlying uh, TMS perspective and, and we're kind of jointly uh, developing uh, that, that's the structure of that software uh, with them um, as well as you know, staying very close to all of the different players across the autonomous sphere um, and in particular, you know, making an actual financial investment with too simple and sitting on the advisory board and having some ownership stake with Embark and others. And so we continue to look um, from an advisory perspective to stay as close to that and the development of really, I think, what will mostly be driver assist for, for, for the foreseeable future, but improved safety technology and improved lifestyle technologies for our drivers. Um, from a, and if you pull back a little bit and just think about it philosophically, what we're really going to try to focus on as we go forward on our roadmap is making sure we build things that we think are secret sauce, things that maybe increase our ability to optimize uh, and, and make our customers' uh, freight networks, networks more efficient, but then buy things that are more uh, rudimentary or fun- foundational, um, um, maybe less uh, sexy in nature, but, but need to be highly efficient. And, and so we're, we're we're taking kind of a hybrid strategy uh, as we bring all of our various divisions on the one platform. We're in the call it early to middle innings of that endeavor and that roadmap is still probably two to three years of runway before we see all of the benefits. but at a at a seat level measurements of productivity continue to increase uh, efficiencies continue to increase across sort of brokerage intermodal logistics overall as well as our asset business. Uh, and then the last thing is is using technology to better utilize uh, these increasingly expensive assets that that play a role in everything we do, um, and so we're able to do more asset sharing across, you know, dedicated one way and logistics, uh, which ultimately benefits our customer uh, when we do that because it lowers the cost of operation. Now, uh, those are some things things that come to mind. I guess one last one that just popped in my head is is the work we're doing on the driver experience. So we've got Kind of this this app called Drive Warner Pro. Uh, it does some of the same things Phil alluded to. which doesn't just give you a trailer assignment; it tells you exactly where the trailer is because every trailer in the fleet is satellite equipped. But it also gives you all kinds of pay data and, and uh, you know next load data, uh, as well as, as as trended data in in what you've been earning over time to kind of avoid the pitfalls of overreacting to a moment or a, one load or one day, I and mean, lets uh, a person see their glide path let uh, lets them do you know kind of tetherless uh, pre-trip and post-trip inspections, and 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 therefore eliminates tons of paperwork, but actually increases accuracy of those inspections. So lots of things to just tr- continuously try to make that driver's lifestyle less tethered to the truck and more of a job that that people can embrace and enjoy over a course of a career. Yeah, these are great feedback. Uh, thank you all for
2: for uh, this. Uh, i want to switch over to a, another important topic sustainability and esg and, and specifically really the environment i think we all have uh, you know a stake in in uh, ensuring uh, emission reduction and a cleaner greener environment obviously and next generation of consumer and and, and everybody is basically uh, you know holding uh, uh, you know us accountable and i think looking for leaders like you to kind of Show the way and have an impact. Uh, maybe we can go um, quickly uh, and, and comment about, you know, how are you approaching this challenge? What are you uh, exactly doing to effect change and become greener as an organization? Maybe we can start with you, Phil.
3: Uh, sure, yeah, and th- this is something that, you know, has been close to our heart for, for a very long time, and, uh, you know, we uh, just completed our our new headquarters, which is going to be a a lead gold uh, building, but really with Intermodal being our our core offering, uh, it's 69% more fuel efficient than truck. Um, We actually uh, do a lot of reporting on uh, sustainability metrics with our customers and are seeing that become a a more important part of purchasing, and so you know, we were able to save our customers 3.1 billion pounds of CO2 emissions last year by converting business to, to intermodal. Um, we need to continue to better use our drivers, make sure they're fully loaded uh, all the time, and we're also increasing our LTL consolidation network and our crosstalk network. crossdock network that's really helping to uh, create more more full trailers, take uh, less. Uh, more freight off the road um, and uh, and continue to, to drive that forward. I think the last thing I would highlight is, um, you know, we are making an investment in electric vehicles. Um, we'll be receiving those in early 2023 um, and believe that that is, you know, although there are some constraints around it and we want to make sure that we're generating the, the right return on capital, um, that uh, that will be something that we'll invest in well into the future given the short haul configuration of our uh, business, so um, all of that you know to continue to is a, is a really a part of our strategy to continue to be a more sustainable organization and, and align that with our customers as well.
2: Great. Uh, what about Warner, Derek? Uh, what are some of the ways that uh, Warner is trying to become greener?
4: Um, sure. Um, so for us, it's kind of an all of the above strategy. Um, you know, if you start on the, the, the fuel side or the energy side of the equation, which obviously is the biggest single place that we think we can make an impact over time, uh, we have electric uh, in our fleet today. We're adding uh, 10 more of those units uh, later this year. Um, we have a hydrogen test uh, set to be launched uh, yet this year. Uh, we've done and continue to test CNG, LNG, and dual fuel type uh, opportunities across the fleet. Um, I think what gets overlooked in this question, or in this, when people get on this subject, sometimes is frankly the biggest thing we can do to lower the overall environment, uh, environmental impact as an industry is just get more and more folks on newer equipment, clean diesel uh, transitions, uh, meaning getting out of the five to six mile per gallon trucks and getting into something much more efficient than that is a, is a, st- a huge step in the right direction and actually a bigger difference maker than almost any of these alternatives that we're discussing. Uh, We operate our fleet at at, uh, around 2.0 average age. Uh, In recent quarters, it's drifted up to 2.2, but that's just relative to equipment availability. Uh, And we've just completed, uh, really last year, but we completed the complete retrofit of all of our terminals, yards, offices, um, et cetera, uh, relative to bringing them up to the the latest standards that we possibly could. In some cases, they can't be LEED certified because of the, the age of the building and the construction of the actual building. But, but they certainly can be retrofitted with uh, you know, the, the absolute latest in uh, you know, energy efficient uh, lighting and, and, and electrical grids and, and smart controls and everything else, and we've done that. Uh, so we'll continue on this journey. We've announced a 55% reduction in carbon footprint by 2035, and we're well on our way toward that. And if we can exceed that, we're certainly gonna push the envelope and exceed that even further.
2: Great. Um, Jonathan, you know you probably attack these kind of things from a product maker perspective, as well as how we consume transportation. Uh, can you walk us through your thoughts on that?
5: Yeah, sure. I think, you know, for us, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, we're, we're importing from, you know, Asia and other regions and then exporting, uh, you know, from Canada or U.S. to the U.S. or other, you know, Europe and, and Asia and, and Latin America. I mean, that's a lot of movement of stock, right? So for us, it's always been a question of how we can reduce, the amount of movement because we know every single time you ship something regardless how efficient your your method of shipment is you know it, it does create you know carbon emissions we always try to find a way to reduce that so even before the pandemic we had initiated a program to identify and develop you know you know different capabilities of insourcing so you know not producing in asia and producing more in north america uh, and really trying to move the most possible components from asia to north america and the reason for that was you know it was multi-fold right we have we know we control. Uh, how our factories operate and, you know, in terms of uh, the emissions, you know, we run extremely green uh, factories. When you think about the type of power we use to run them, uh, the type of air conditioning, the the certifications we get. So, you know, that's one factor. Uh, The other one is obviously reduce our dependency on Asia. So not only an ESG thing, but also, you know, making sure that we have, we control more of our destiny in that regard. And obviously, you know, we wish we we accelerate a little bit faster on that mandate because, that was one of the main concerns and impacts from everything we just discussed today. Uh, but then the last one is re- really to reduce uh, our car- carbon footprint. So I spoke about the factories, and then it's really the carbon footprint around the freight as a whole. So this really led us to the implementation of injection molding and CNC system that allows us to manufacture our own chassis. So you know, when you buy a computer or a server product, you know, it's enclosed in this metal box and you know, a lot goes into that metal box and a lot of carbon emissions are kind of uh, you know, a lot of carbon emissions are related to that to the manufacturing of that box. So we really wanted to take that in and really insource and, and manufacture it in Canada and the US. And what, it, what, led, what, led, what led to uh, what really happened there is we actually started an R&D project where we developed a patented uh, graphene composite material to replace the metal that we can manufacture here that's fully recyclable and made up of more than 50% plastic waste recovered from the ocean in agreement with OceanWorks. So really it's changing it from a metal box you know, produced in China or Taiwan to a mixed graphene plastic, but using plastic waste that's recyclable, uh, manufactured in North America in green factories. Uh, you know, We started to roll those products out in 2022. And what we've seen is obviously the decrease in manufacturing-related emissions. We've reduced our IT related waste. And we reduce freight-related carbon footprint by more than 75%. So all this while improving the robustness of our supply chain. So we think, you know, this is really the path we're, we're taking. We're looking to source more and more to reduce the footprint of our products, uh, how they're being developed and how they're being shipped. And uh, we're pretty proud of the progress we made thus far.
2: Great. Thanks for uh, this fantastic uh, rundown. Uh, a couple of more things I want to do before we wrap up the call. Uh, one will require you to take out your crystal balls uh, now, and we can start kind of looking, moving forward. Um, like, what what are maybe one or two key themes that you think will affect the supply chain over the next five years? Maybe we can
4: start with you, Derek. Sure, I'll try to be quick. Um, you know, I think ongoing, um, you know, conversion of the propulsion systems and trucks is going to be a hotly debated and interesting topic as it plays out. I think you'll see winners and losers. I think it's too early to tell which one will win. Um, The other one is I do believe you're going to see after the disruptions of the last few years, ongoing um, efforts to nearshore um, more manufacturing. I don't think it's going to be the wholesale change. People think it may be, but I do think around the edges You'll see more nearshoring i think that bodes well for domestic transportation um and we're excited about the reality that a lot of that will probably be mexico and uh related and uh, our positioning there is, is uh, second to none and and the last one i guess that comes to mind is, is i do think we're going to continue to see pressure on the labor front because if you just look at overriding demographics across the country there's going to be a lot more people retiring than potentially entering the full-time workforce and especially in the roles that where those retirements will be most um, apparent. Uh, so the trades, truck, you know, truck driver, mechanic, tech, those types of roles have a tremendous amount of pressure on them over the coming, you know, call it five to ten years. And I think we'll we'll have to continue to find ways to uh, excite people to enter those professions.
2: Thanks, Derek Jonathan, what do you think the key teams are?
5: So I think I agree a lot with uh, with Derek. I think you're really going to you're really going to see uh, what he mentioned, like the labor shortage. I don't think is is going to necessarily improve itself uh, over the coming years. I know there's different strategies to to kind of address it, but I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Uh, in terms of insourcing or or nearshoring, as he mentioned, I think that you're already seeing that in the tech industry. Uh, you know, there's announcements from uh, TSMC, Intel, and some of the major semiconductor manufacturers where they're building you know massive plants in North America. Uh, that's coming online in the you know, 24 and I think that will alleviate a lot of what we experienced you know the tech industry was caught by surprise with everything that happened I think a lot of industries were caught by surprise but you know I know you know very uh, you know I, I know that uh, I know the tech industry was definitely uh, you know shocked by everything that happened it showed a lot of the vulnerabilities in our supply chain and I think there's a lot of good action being done to kind of address it the only issue is the actions do our, our longer term. It's not something that's going to correct itself overnight. There's a lot of infrastructure to kind of implement, uh, to deal with, the, the everything that happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, what I think is really is trying to see from the challenges where the opportunities are and how to kind of, uh, you know, find ways to address customer needs ahead of time. And the way I really see that is, you know, you, you can try to mitigate the most possible you know elements that are not in your control. Uh, but it's, it's really focused on, you know, Developing a, a redundant supply chain, decentralizing operations. I think there's been a, a focus of doing everything, manufacturing everything in Asia, and producing it across the globe. I think you know, looking at the ways of kind of decentralizing where we're manufacturing. Not only needs to be uh, in North America, it can be across the globe and really get closer to clients to reduce the reliance on cross-continent freight. And then leveraging innovation. I think that innovation is going to be the key uh, to a lot of what's going on. It's it's for again mitigating supply chain in pr- reducing carbon footprint i don't think we really have a choice especially seeing how technology is growing right it's it's growing at, a, a, at an accelerated pace with covid the fact that everyone you know, you know is working more from home there's more the infrastructure is growing at a faster pace than ever before we need to find ways to leverage innovation to reduce to reduce how much we're really emitting in terms of carbon and uh, dependency on international vendors
2: Great, thanks, Phil. Anything to add from your uh, from your side?
3: No, I, I, not really. I would agree with those. I think it's about attracting and retaining talent, and that's going to bring about a lot of innovation. I think the only other thing I'd highlight is that I think with all the disruptions that we see have seen, um, I hope there's going to be, you know, for everybody, a, a, more of a focus on longer-term partnerships and really building that stronger, more durable supply chain for for all the stakeholders involved here. So.
2: Great, thanks. Um, last um, topic, and, and maybe, you know, it's not really a topic, it's advice. Um, so as we wrap up this call, first, Jonathan, starting with you, what would you give um, kind of in terms of advice to the freight companies and how they can help your client uh, clients like you, obviously?
5: So I can tell you what, it, what I told our freight vendors. You know, obviously, they, they went through, you know, we, we had these discussions over the, over the pandemic. You know, for me, it's all about partnership, right? I think it's the measure for me of a true partnership is how the parties act when times are tough, right? When they're competing interests. You know, some vendors kind of uh, will protect themselves at all costs, right? You know, they want to make sure they protect their business first, which is, you know, tends to happen. Even, unfortunately, use the opportunity to prioritize either large or higher volume accounts or even pad margins. We've seen it and we, we deal with many different vendors in this regard. Others saw it as an opportunity to provide the much-needed support to their partners and weather the storm together, right? I know it sounds like a, a very, you know, global kind of or high-level approach, but I think, you know, it's like what uh, it's what Phil just said, long-term partnerships are what drives growth for everyone. And I think this was a true test of a lot of partnerships we saw. Uh, we were glad to see that a lot of our freight vendors, you know, really decided to weather the storm together, very transparent about what was going on, and, you know, really, it helped us grow together and figure out ways to solve our problems. So that's really my advice It's really just to focus on partnership and really focus on, you know, being transparent and uh, and really weathering the storms together with with the client and not just deciding, hey, you know, I have tons of volume. You know, you're not you're not big enough for me to to really move a lot in this regard. I think that's that's really what uh, what, what I would focus on is really, really the partnership.
2: Great, Phil. Uh, maybe I can start with you from your end. Like, how how do you uh, what do you say to shippers, um, you know, out there uh, in terms of how they're using the supply chain, how they can get better?
3: Yes, yeah, so I, I I would actually kind of reiterate a lot of what Jonathan said. Uh, you know, to me, it's about you know partnership and locking in with your partners, both both through co- contract terms, right? Locking in capacity over a longer cycle. Um, but also if you're not, if you don't wanna do that, also locking in with those partners through different cycles and managing through them together, right? I think that that is gonna set your company apart and allow you to manage volatility, which it's it's gonna to continue to be volatile uh, much more successfully than your, your competitors. And that's gonna allow your partners to invest, right? And have a longer term view of the relationship. And I, I guarantee you, if you take that approach, uh, you will get it paid back. Um, only other thing I would highlight is transparency and openness around your strategy and your priorities with those partners, because all the companies that you're probably working with have are doing other things with other clients that if you're open and transparent with your priorities, they could help you solve those problems through things they've seen with other clients and uh, or have already implemented or are doing. And I, so I just think that transparency comes with partnership, but uh, but it would be something else that I, I think you'll get a lot of return on that openness around your strategy as well.
2: Great. Derek, um, any uh, insights you want to add?
4: Yeah, sure. Tough to add a lot to that, so I'll be quick. Um, uh, you know, the one thing I would say that maybe hasn't been mentioned yet is we talked earlier about the, it decreased efficiency at uh, chipper and consignees uh, around the country during COVID. Uh, I know that that was driven by labor constraints that they were struggling with. And so we do understand uh, that it's not intentional, but there is an opportunity now to get back to normalized levels. We've seen dwell times increase uh, industry-wide, both in the container and trailer market, both the chipper and consignees. I think so focusing on the four walls and making sure that you you, you create your own future capacity through increased efficiencies would be important. I think focusing on working with well-capitalized, safe, and efficient carriers uh, is important and then demanding of those carriers um, that they are innovative with you, that they work through your issues with you and bring solutions to the table is critical. And to do that, you got to do what Phil said, which is we, we've got to have a level of transparency about where the shippers wanting to go and why, what their forecasting looks like and why, and really dialing that forecasting in. Um, uh, the better uh, transparency and visibility we have to where uh, shippers uh, freight flows may be going and it, with as long a lead time as we could have that, just makes us better providers. So help us help you. Uh, and I think if we work together, we can continue to make progress on this.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, Derek, Jonathan and Phil, um, your time is, is very, very valuable and we really appreciate taking the time to join us today and, and offer these great insights that are no doubt uh, very valuable to the shippers and carriers alike and uh, thank you everyone for listening um, as always you know reach out to your BMO relationship manager if you have any questions or want to hear how we might be able to help you and help your business uh, navigate these interesting times um, we have a monthly research report we published called Cargo Connection. It looks at supply demand across all the various modes that uh, we we talked about today that could be an area that you can kind of keep uh, keep up to date on what's going on in these markets. Uh, so reach out to your relationship manager if you want to be on that distribution list. And again, thanks all for listening.
0: Thanks for listening. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more episodes, visit bmocm.com slash markets plus. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com slash legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit com slash public dash disclosure slash.